nobody, I promise you, cares more about your career than you do. And you have to remind yourself of that and do what you need to do to position yourself. To me, that means you enable others' success. And, and then you'd be surprised that kind of it's a virtuous circle. Everybody wants to have you part of the team when you care legitimately about somebody else. That was Beth Ford, CEO at Landa Lakes. Ford visited the Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where students like me sit down to interview business leaders from around the world. I'm Adrian Negreros, an MBA student from the class of 2021. This year, I had the pleasure of interviewing Ford from her home office in Minnesota. She shared invaluable insight ranging from how to be a self-advocate and champion of your own career to the importance of investing in rural America. You're listening to View From The Top, the podcast. Beth, it is so great to have you with us today. Well, it's so terrific to be here. As I said, I wish I could be there, but I'm happy to be with you all. This will work. Um, As we chatted a second ago, I grew up in Indiana and I was living in Minneapolis before coming to school. It's not often that we get a leader from the Midwest talking to my classmates. The campus is just thrilled again. So thank you. I'm happy to be here. And, and what do you mean? You don't get a lot of people from the Midwest? This is where it's all happening, people. This is where it's happening. We'll convince them very shortly. Okay. I'm, I'm sure of it. There's a number of things I want to talk about, Beth, including your experience growing up in Iowa, leading a Fortune 200, and some broader topics like the food supply chain and rural broadband access. But let's start by going back to Sioux City, Iowa. It's your home. It's where you grew up. It's a town of about 80,000 people, and you have a large family. There's eight brothers and sisters, including yourself. You got a room, which you shared with your three sisters, and got one drawer all to yourself. What was it like growing up in your household? Well, as I said, you know, you had to have a drawer because you needed a place to put the hand me down. So there it is. Um, you know, I was number five of eight. I had two older brothers, two older sisters, a younger sister, two younger brothers. Um, and my dad was a truck driver. We were very much a working class family, um, but no different than any other working class families there. Um, education was important to my parents. Um, my mom, who is still with us, my father has passed. Uh, my mother was, uh, I think, has been the most significant role model to me in my life, uh, an incredibly resilient woman, um, left in an orphanage when she was five by her parents with her brothers with her brother and then um, was adopted eventually at age 10. Um, And here's a woman who became a nurse and then became a minister at the end. In between, she was a psychologist, a therapist. She would say she worked on their their body, their minds and their spirits. And so she's she's been an incredible role model. And so during that time, what's it like growing up in a family of eight kids when you're working class and you're kind of in a, a room with your three siblings, it's noisy. Um, dinner is a, a, you know, kill or be killed exercise, you know, ate a lot of chicken necks and wings. As I said, I didn't know there was white meat on a chicken until I was at least 17. And my older brothers were out of the house. Um, you know, it was, a, it was very much a, um, a moving kind of a target in our, um, in our family. Uh, my siblings have achieved, um, you know, good professional careers. We all went to college. Um, but you had to kind of work your way to college. So to your your point, you know, the first jobs I had were detasseling corn. I was a babysitter. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, start, I haven't told you, Adrian, I've saved this for you. So I was probably 12 or 13. I was babysitting because, you know, you make some money. I was making like $2 an hour. I've got like five kids. The, the oldest of the kids was probably about my age. He grabbed the keys to the car that they had and he floored this thing and he went through the house. I never got any babysitting jobs after that. Shocker, you know? I was like, oh my gosh. I had to call my mom. I was like, oh, mom, this is not good. Um, but I did all of those kinds of jobs. The the detasseling corn. I worked as a night cashier. I cleaned toilets in college. I, I mean, I had all sorts of jobs. Um, and it was very much a working class uh, family 
that the expectation was if you wanted to achieve something, you had to invest in your education and, and yourself. And as well, you had to work hard to get what you wanted. Makes a lot of sense to me, Beth. And you mentioned, of course, the $2. I want to make sure the audience and us are on the same page because adjusted for inflation, this is a rough estimate because I passed my finance class. I didn't crush it, but it's something like 10 or $11 in today's terms. So it's like not too shabby, but it was hard work. You were up at 5 a.m., right? Up at five, got onto a bus with my siblings. Um, you put in long, uh, long pants and um, you know, long sleeves so that you didn't get eaten up on detasseling corn. Um, and it was hot, and it was you know, it was it wasn't appealing work. Perhaps that was there was a whole strategy there, like you need to work harder on your brain so that you aren't having to do this for a living um, going forward. But you know, it again, it taught me so many lessons in my life. All of those jobs that were not glamorous that uh, involved manual labor wasn't just the, I didn't want to do this. It was the value of hard work. It was the value of these people um, every day. And so I, I'm grateful for that. And in fact, I almost feel concerned that my, I have three children and of course they've never had to deal with any of those kinds of challenges where you have the wrong clothes or, you know, you don't get to go somewhere cause you can't afford it. Um, they don't ever have to deal with that. And I kind of think that they're missing out. I imagine that these experiences, though, help you connect with your farmers in a very personal way. You can relate to working hard, being out in the cornfields. So I think there's a positive there. And I'm sure your, your kids learn through the stories that you and your partner, Jill, share with them. I think so. I mean, Jill, my, my wife, uh, we've been together now 28 years, and she's a Peoria, Illinois native. She, her family came from farming as well and um, uh, you know, are, came from the Midwest and, and were in farming. And she was uh, one of the first class of women at West Point. And then we met at Columbia, her at the law school, mine at the business school. Um, so you hope that they, they take away this value of hard work, which both of us obviously um, have, have had as central to our lives. But, you know, it's hard. I think sometimes it's harder for me just to say no, because I can remember what it's like to not have something, uh, but I need to do better, make sure I tell them no, make it hard for them. I would say hard work wasn't the only lesson you got growing up. You got what you called, and you mentioned your mom, Carol, and you got what you called the most important leadership advice ever from her when you were young. So could you take us back to that conversation or moment? What did she say that stuck so closely? Are you talking about don't be afraid to, what you, to ask for what you want? That's exactly yeah, it. Yeah, what it was was I was probably 12 or 13. I was having a tantrum about something. I don't even remember what it was. But I, you know, I'm tall. My mother's a smaller woman. She's probably five two or five three, and I'm six feet tall. Obviously, take after my father, who was a big, very big man. And he, and I'm, you know, I'm having that tantrum. Like, I can't believe you didn't do this. And she said, um, she said, do you think I'm a mind reader? I am not a mind reader. If you want something, you ask for it. And for whatever reason, I can see her face. I thought that that made such good logical sense to me. She, you know, it stopped me cold. And through my life, I've, I've reflected back on that where there are times, I think, in your professional career, and those of you who've already had the career, now you're back at MBA school and, and you'll go back out. Um, I think sometimes we're reluctant or we think, gosh, I'm a great performer. They're going to just notice me. That just doesn't really happen. Um, it, it really doesn't. And you can't be, you know, you don't want to be a braggart, or, you know, you want to have humility, but you can't be shy to make clear to your supervisors, your leaders, whomever, what your aspiration is, what your ambition is to, to achieve. Otherwise, people aren't going to just guess. Um, nobody, I promise you, cares more about your career than you do. Nobody. And um, you have to remind yourself of that and do, do what you need to do to position yourself. To me, that means um, you enable others' success. You don't want to be the guy or the gal that nobody wants to work with because they're, you're all about yourself. Um, and instead, you should enable their success. Um, and, and then you'd be surprised that kind of it's a virtuous circle. Everybody wants to, to be part, have you part of the team when you, when you care legitimately about somebody else. I think that makes a ton of sense. You know, thinking about me and our audience listening, I think we all go in with like, we need to be humble, respectful, and that's all true. But that doesn't mean you can't be confident in yourself and a self-advocate and say, hey, I deserve this. I work hard. I drive results. And I think that's just an incredible message that your mom gave you. And I'm glad you shared it with all of us. Yeah, I, I probably don't. 
I don't even say I deserve it. What I what I generally say is, um, this is something I aspire to. What do I need to do? Do you see me in that role, first of all? And sometimes people will tell you, no, they don't. They don't see you as achieving something. And to me, that's a gift. It is a gift, but you have to get yourself the right mindset to hear that. It's a gift because then you can ask why. Why isn't it? What do I need to do? And if it's not, they don't ever see you that way, that that's not your right place. You know, and I, that's a gift to me. That's not a, oh, it feels bad, even if it might feel bad for a moment. Um, you have to say, boy, what a gift. I'm so glad and grateful I learned that. So I usually just say, you know, this is what I aspire to. Is this possible? Do you see me in that way? What do I need to do to position myself? Um, what are the other investments I need to make? What do I need to learn um, to, to be put in that position? Yeah, I love that. I think it's something we can all use moving forward in our professional careers. Beth, I want to ask about post-college. So after Iowa State, mm -hmm. so that's go Cyclones, right? You're not a Hawkeye fan, I assume? No, I'm not a Hawkeye. I'm a Cyclone. Got it. Um, after Iowa State, you go to oil and gas. You mentioned your dad worked on the truck. So I think similar industries. You were on the tanker, right? You described it as you and the dudes on the night shift. <laughs> well, I, you know, for, so out of undergrad, I got this job interview. No. If you need to understand, okay, again, I'm kind of a working class kid. So I had like one suit, one dress. This is back in the day, you know, so I was like wearing a blue button down thing. And I had like this gray suit and I got this, this job interview with mobile oil and I went to their headquarters in Virginia. And I remember this so vividly because we were staying at a hotel and the doors were on the inside, <laughs> you know, so this was not a motel. No, this was real stuff. There was real food there. So I was like, okay, this is fancy. So I go uh, to the interview and I really liked the company. And so they said, okay, great. You're going to Los Angeles. You're going to, um, you're going to go through operations training. So my background and a lot of my career, I was in line operations. Yes. I managed tanker barge trucks, trucking facilities. I was in the refineries. I was in manufacturing facilities. I did some time on the trading floor. Um, I, you know, so I had probably nine different jobs in nine years with them. Um, so this, the, me and the dudes, yeah, it was constantly me and, you know, 50 men or a hundred men or, you know, me in training in South Padre with 50 guys or 20 guys. And that story I tell that you may be referring to is when you're running a terminal for an oil industry or a trucking facility, um, you have to go through, you have to go to Reno to learn how to put out a fire. And then you're in South Padre to learn about what do you do if there's an oil spill. So I was down in South Padre and it was me and, you know, 25 guys. And um, part of the training is you're going up in a helicopter. You got to chart where this might be. So I'm, I'm there at the, the, the place we're going to depart. And the guy yells out, he's like, okay, I'm going to yell out your name and I need you to tell me what you're weighted. I was, I was like, what? <laughs> this is off the hook. I'm not doing that. We're not, we're not. I went over and I said, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, we need to make sure we balance the, the aircraft. I said, I'm going to write this down on a piece of paper. I'm going to give it to you. This is between you and me. So I'm standing there and he puts it in the computer and it's five pounds heavier. I said, that's five pounds heavier. He goes, every woman lies about their weight. <laughs> you know, it's great. Those are great, fun jobs. I mean, I had to call, I had to tell one of the guys that worked with me on the dock to bring his teeth to work. He kept showing up without his teeth. I was like, Tommy, it's super distracting, man. You got to bring your teeth in, okay? You're killing me with that. I mean, those jobs, though, um, it's wonderful. And I never was uncomfortable there. And the reason I think is because I kept thinking this could be my father, my uncle, my, my cousins. Um, this was not abnormal for me. Um, and I felt pretty clearly based on what I saw from my father when he would come home from work. Um, or from come off the road, you know, the most important thing I needed to do was show up every day in a consistent, positive, forward-looking um, manner as a supervisor or as a, a manager and help them understand how much their work was valued. You know, it's, it, it, you. what is your job today? Your job is to put out this many on the line or you have to make this many stops. And there's real value to that work. And unfortunately, I think we minimize it now today, of course, during the pandemic, everybody who's a driver or who's doing that kind of work in food production, for instance, are highly valued because we see that. Um, but I, I learned that lesson pretty clearly that I needed to make sure they understood I respected them. 
Um, I respected the hard work they did every day. And, um, and I think that that was a, a real benefit for me. That's incredible, Beth. And I think kind of looking back on what you've spoken about, just great values, you know, being a self-advocate, hard work and determination, what you just mentioned, being a good team player, even when your teammates ask you what your weight is, still being an advocate <laughs> for them. Um, you know, to me, it's no surprise you've had such incredible professional success, seven companies, six industries, ending at Land Lakes. I want to talk a little bit about your first couple roles there. So Chris Polisinski, the former CEO, had lots of faith in you. Within a few years being in Arden Hills, Minnesota, you led multiple P&Ls that drove the business. So how were you able to drive such high confidence from Chris in you being there so quickly? Uh, well, I'm going I'm to talk about that, but I also want to talk about one other thing that I think is important for the why Land Lakes, and thus why I think I also was able to accelerate my career there. Um, in the interim between mobile and then and Land Lakes in those other industries, I, one of them was in publishing. I was in publishing Scholastic, you know, Clipper the Big Red Dog, Harry Potter, and Hachette, Little Brown Books, um, the Twilight series. And what I learned about myself in those jobs was why would I do that? Well, because um, the job at Land Lake, or at uh, Scholastic was about literacy in children. And so there was a power of meaningful work to me. I enjoyed, for instance, being on the trading floor for mobile oil, but I didn't love it. Intellectually, I understood it. It was fun, but it didn't speak to my soul the way the mess, as I say, the mess of the human condition speaks to me and this opportunity to deal with something like literacy in children. At Land Lakes, when I went there, I had first thought, I'm not going to do that. I was living in New York City. Jill was running a hedge fund. I was traveling around the world. We had our three children. I'm like, oh, you know, we're pretty good here in New York City. And then, you know, something about the structure of the, the company, about um, uh, feeding a growing world population, about farmers, that spoke to me. When I started, so to your point, I started as chief supply chain officer and I was running all the operating functions. And it's a pretty big platform. It's about 300 you know, plus manufacturing, et cetera, facilities, chemicals, food processing, you name it. Um, and then I picked up uh, R&D and then I picked up IT and then I started running the businesses and then I picked up the last business and I became COO. Um, during that time, I go back to being an advocate for yourself. I did meet with Chris quite a bit. Um, I, of course, got a lot of visibility to the board, and I talked with the chief human resource officer. And I was pretty clear with Chris that my ambition, my aspiration, was to take over as CEO of this company. Now, I had been in position in two other companies to be considered for CEO, and I made the definitive decision that was not my right place, that I could do it, but I, there were others that were actually going to be better than me, I thought, in, in, like in publishing. I think if you're in publishing, you love that. You know all the editors, the publisher. I mean, you just know it. And I thought it was interesting, but it didn't speak to my soul. So at Land Lakes, what I think that they saw was my, in my conversation with him was an ability to continue to stretch me, active dialogue with him. And then, of course, you always in those situations have to deliver results. Otherwise... You know, you're not going to be you're not going to be given that next um, next step in your career. Absolutely, and you of course drove incredible results throughout your career at Land Lakes. Last Friday, super amazing Q3 earnings. So congratulations from us Thank to you. you. Um, Thank I want to ask about the structure. I think you mentioned it briefly, the co-op structure. It's not super familiar to everyone on the West Coast, the Silicon Valley types. So could you tell us about what that means for you as CEO? Yeah, the cooperative. So I've worked in small private. I've worked in private period. I've worked in large corporations, public traded companies. I'm on public cup boards. Uh, in a cooperative structure, the members or the owners own you. Okay, so I report to a board right now that has 28 board members. Um, they are elected locally. So there may be five out of California, for instance, in the Central Valley, which is one of the most productive food production areas in the world. Um, and from that, they, it's almost like, think of it as like the House of Representatives. But I, I say to them, when they're elected, once you step into the boardroom, it's governance. It's, you're not the House of Representatives. You're not there to worry about whether Joey had some animal husbandry issue, okay? You're, you're a board member of a Fortune 200 company, and that's a big responsibility. Um, the structure then 
we hold back when from our earnings um, and that earnings the earnings are generated from either milk for instance we have dairy producers most people know land of lakes for our dairy production we also own Purina animal nutrition we own Linfield Technologies which works with growers on the acre we own Truterra sustainable um, uh, production business and then we also have an NGO, Venture 37, which does work around the world with the Gates Foundation and others on smallholder farmers, et cetera. So this structure is interesting because really uh, we collateralize based on the assets and based on the, the holdback from these members. We do have a preferred tranche, so it acts like equity on our balance sheet. But I'm not out in the market selling shares, right? So you really have to, you know, it's a skinny margin business in food production because you have some part that's commodity, some part that is uh, differentiated or uh, value-added or CPG-like, but you have to, you really, that margin is so critical because it's reinvested in the business um, and then there's holdback from the members for our, for what we earn. Some of it goes back almost like a dividend, we call it patronage, back to them. Some of it is held back at the corporate level. So, you know, there's been great growth because let's think about it. Debt financing right now, I mean, money's pretty cheap. Um, and we've got this private equity trunk. So we haven't been held back in our aspiration for growing these businesses. Um, but we also don't access, um, you know, capital markets in terms of, of um, putting out you know, different shares. We do report. We go through the whole SOX compliance that everybody would be familiar with. Um, we, I meet with the rating agencies, I meet with investors, kind of a similar situation. So it is different. This company was started in 1921 by Upper Midwest Dairy Farmers trying to get power in the channel and get their sweet cream butter into the population centers in the East. So they formed a marketing cooperative that was successful. So additionally, they formed a supply cooperative. The supply cooperative would be the animal feed side or your goods or the other things. So it's a fully integrated platform. Literally, we go right from the farm. We have to take our members' milk. I can't say, no, we don't want it because there's too much of it. No, that's our job is to find a home for it. Um, and, you know, the cows are milking two or three times a day, so you've got to figure that out, um, all the way to retail. Right. Beth, you mentioned your board. And back in July 2018, they named you a CEO. Reading the news release, I love it. They focus on metrics. You drove great performance in your multiple roles. Let's put the people that do the best work in the highest positions. But more personally to you, and I'm sure this decision is made over a number of weeks, but can you take us back to the email or the phone call, the moment it became really real to you? I'm about to lead a Fortune 200 company. What were you feeling? Well, we had been talking about this um, for a couple of years, obviously. And then really these processes start early. If you're in a company and you're in um, the, the top level, if you're in the C-suite or even before that, generally, like as soon as I took over as CEO, I started to look at who could take my job in the future. So it's really fairly early because you're working on developing them. Um, what I did is, and what they did is not on, um, dissimilar to uh, other companies in which I'm sitting on the board or on, on their uh, comp committee or elsewhere. Um, you go through a whole process. I did business cases. Think of it just like MBA school. Um, I did interviews. The exec committee, which were, um, there were eight gentlemen who were on that committee, ran the process. There were other internal candidates. There was another internal candidate. And, and then they made a decision up front that they weren't going to be external. Now, most companies will say, if the performance of the business is what is expected, has been expected, will stay inside. If you want disruption, um, you want to go outside. That's kind of a general rule of thumb. I've made it pretty clear, um, and I think most people in my position would, if I've been there seven, you know, six or seven years at that point, I'm COO, I've run everything, I'm running everything, and you go outside, that's a vote of no confidence, right? And I said that. If you do that, that will be a vote of no confidence, and I will not stay. Um, and they said, no, we're going to go inside. There are a couple of other candidates. So you go through a whole process. They bring in an external firm to interview you as well. You've got interviews multiple times with this exec committee. They're doing background checks. They're checking any board I've sat on. They're doing, you know, they're looking at my, if, do I have any legal issues? Um, uh, so it's a multi-week process, actually multiple months. 
And um, towards the end, what they did is they uh, called and said, we want you to fly into Denver where the whole board will be. And during that time, um, I met with the entire board, 28 of them. I stood up and I gave them my strategic vision for the company. Um, and then I stood up there for probably three hours and they could ask me any question. Um, and I would answer those. And then I left the room. And I, when I left, they voted and they made me CEO and I came back in. So um, then, you know, they said, congratulations. Then I went down the hall and started doing press. They had already set up um you know, I think Kim is on the phone, uh, my head of communications, and already set up interviews with Wall Street Journal and with um, some of the local uh, publications here. And then it was very funny because my assistant said, well, you know, do you want us to put a plane over there? And I was like, well, I'm at the airport. I'll just go. And then you're kind of by yourself. So now you've done the interview. You're kind of hanging out. My you know, Jill, my spouse, was traveling with her mother to the West Coast. All my kids were at camp, so it was, like, just me. And so I guess I went to the bar at, uh, at the airport and had a beer. And then I got home, and it was just me and the cat, for God's sake. I'm like, this is kind of an anticlimactic moment, actually. You know, who's checking out the outfit for tomorrow when, when they make this announcement? I guess you are, Madge, the cat, because even the dog's gone. I wanted um, to ask. I wanted to ask. Where do you celebrate in the Twin Cities after being named CEO? Apparently, you celebrate Madge, is what I just. Apparently, it's like yeah. I, I guess I get to have one good glass of wine, um, and you know now he's home. Now it, you know it's it's very funny. Of course, I called my family. Um, I called you know my my siblings and my mom, and um, they they were aware, and um, and it was joyous and. And then eventually, my family came home. But the first few days, of course, it, that wasn't the case, and it was probably fine because there's so much that happens on that first day when you step back into headquarters and you tell everybody, okay, um, that, you know, it was me who was selected as CEO and we talk about what's next and do constant rounds of interviews or talking to customers or talking to shareholders. I want to talk about a couple broader topics, Beth, that you work very hard and your, your team also. First on rural broadband access. So I think simply put, tens of millions of Americans are online and we sit here and it's wonderful we can chat via Zoom, but there are kids right now that they just don't have any form of education. And I know you've partnered with the public and private sector to address this. What do we all need to do better? So private, public, people listening right now to this to help students get online. Well, the first thing you need to do is be aware that there is this gap that there are 18 to 20 million Americans that lack broadband access, minimum lack any access to you know, cellular at all. And a majority of them are in rural communities. Now they're also in underserved areas. So I'm, I'm working two things. One, I'm part of the business round table. I'm on their board of directors. I'm right now on a, on a committee with Jamie Dimon and um, Robert Smith around um, you know, uh, wealth creation, especially for underserved communities for, for the black African-American communities. So that's a portion, and, and there is a, like a third, over a third um, of African-American Black um, households lack access um, to broadband. In rural communities, it's uh, equally startling, and I think people don't understand. that They think it's somebody else's problem. I keep saying, listen, this is an American problem. The, the fact of the matter is that um, food security is a national security issue. Look at the presidency in, uh, or in, in China. What is he saying? Food security is a major issue for them. Um, I could talk with you uh, at length and probably your eyes will blaze over about what we have going on over there. But, um, uh, but it is a national security issue. So it's not somebody else's problem. It leaves us less secure as a nation. The second thing is, yes, the kids there, 95% of farms are still family owned. And so they have families. These are you know, young children. And, and at the same time, they're having to make a decision. Do I run some of the equipment with whatever bandwidth I have or do the kids go to school? Teachers are having to drive out to these farms and get paper homework. The families then drive an hour or two next, to sit next to a school bus where they've got hotspots so they can get enough bandwidth to finish their homework on their cell phone. I mean, it's just unacceptable. There is a shortage of 40,000 doctors in rural communities. There's, uh, you know, over a third uh, of children are growing up in, are growing up food insecure. There's a shortage of housing. Um, so there are so many issues here. 
what I say, when you say, what can we do? The first thing you need to do is be aware that this is really a major issue. We can talk all we want and you're in the valley. And I go so many times in there and I talk to entrepreneurs and they've got the greatest tech. And I say, none of it can be used in these communities unless we get some technology in there, some broad, but basic wiring. This should be a right, like electricity, like mail delivery. And, um, and otherwise, all of this innovation, which these, this technology that is now under development um, can help us solve climate, climate change. We just started a partnership with Nori, which wants to be the eBay of carbon credit trading. Uh, we're doing something else in, in Iowa right now where we're connecting um, on water quality these farms and we're giving them a score with our TrueTerra Insight engine. It's got over a trillion data points where they can help improve their decision-making on the farm, which will improve water quality and seepage into this, into this um, water, these, these uh, rivers. And from that, they get a certain uh, amount per acre. We've got to think of other incentive structures for these farmers. We can't have what it is in this year, $40 billion of subsidies from the government. Farmers don't want to be on the dole. They want you know, open access to markets. And we have to think about what will likely be this transition leveraging technology that will accelerate in the ag sector for many, many other pressure points that we, you know, again, I don't want to um, have everybody's eyes glaze over about why electrification of the transportation sector is going to have a deleterious impact on the farm community. I mean, I could go into multiple issues that if you really looked at it, you'd say, wow, wait a minute, we got to pay attention to this. This is going to be a transformational moment in our society. Right now, I have concern. I'm sure all of you are looking at this, looking at the concentration of COVID cases in the upper Midwest where I am and where many of our members are. And we saw this February, we started what's called our American Connection Project. It's got over 125 different companies now. We are partnered very directly with Microsoft. They spent some time with Satya. We announced a, a, a partnership, A, on tools development, but B, on also closing this, um, this digital divide. Um, and one of the things that we saw was that since there's a shortage of doctors, what's going to happen when this goes into the Dakotas, where it is right now? And, um, and so what we did was we, uh, I, I called all the governors and sent out letters to the governors, to the speaker, to the majority leader, all of them to say, you need to change your regulatory framework to allow for prescriptions to be written. If you, you know, if we see you on a Zoom, you don't have to be in person and to allow reimbursement rates to be supportive of, of um, funding a doctor or a hospital. Um, and with that, there's been an acceleration in healthcare of telemedicine. Uh, the Mayo Clinic, who we're also partnered with, the Cleveland Clinic and others, tell us that there have been more telemedicine appointments in one day than all of last year. So it's a long answer when you say, what are you doing and what can you do? But any of you who are looking at your careers, I can tell you all of these things are different vectors on this transformational moment in our, um, in our society. And the opportunity is to recognize how enabling technology is. And if we do not have it in these communities, it leaves us less secure as a nation. Um, that's why job creation is lagged in those areas. And then we can go on and on. It's incredible, Beth. And I think, you know, I imagine you've enlightened a lot of people listening and also invigorated a lot of people listening that we can do more. And it's a group effort here. It's, it's so clear to me how much you care about communities in the rural Midwest, farmers, kids, you often are the only one like yourself in the room, whether that's on the tanker with the dudes, whether that's running a $14 billion business, that's more than Airbnb and Lyft combined, if anyone's tracking in the audience. Beth, I know that the press loves their headlines. They like their clicks and their views. They like to put us into boxes. When I researched for this, I couldn't find an article that didn't have in bold, triple underlined, First, open the gay female CEO. And except actually your press release from your own company, right? The board focused on results. So there was one. Um, but you've talked about authenticity and identity in a matter of fact way. It's who you are. It's in your DNA. You want your members, your employees to bring their full selves to work. So you want to do the same. I think, though, by doing that, by being you, it means a lot to a lot of different communities 
And for those of us that are part of the LGBTQ plus community, 10% of the Stanford class is for women working in male dominated industries or for the little kid in Iowa who can look at you and say, I could be the next Fortune 200 CEO. You're making a major difference. Thank and you. I just want to say thank you. Well, that's very kind of you. I, you know, I, Again, it's I, I don't find my life that interesting, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's probably that whole thing. My, when I talked to one of my sons today, he was like, oh, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm going to talk with the, these uh, students at Stanford. And he said, oh, that's great. You know, blah, blah, blah. He's thinking about how. And he's like, why do they want to listen to you? <laughs> you Because know? in real life, um, and I'm like, there's a lot here, honey. There's a lot. You know? he, just, he just laughed. But I think, uh, but I appreciate you saying that. What I recognize is all of us look for moments of, help, of hope or for some, this possibility that this is possible. I've told these stories about people who've kind of, I've had literally thousands and thousands of people connect with me to talk about the, uh, you know, leading your authentic life. And thank you, because that's so um, helpful, including parents of young children who's, who've come out as gay. Um, but, but one of the ones that was most touching to me was I was at an event um, in, uh, it was here in the Midwest somewhere, and I was waiting to go speak to the, to the speaker who was going to come off the stage, and, and there was a big man, and big gentleman, now I'm six feet tall, so if I'm telling you the man's big, that's a big man, um, and he's, you know, he's standing there, and I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go over and introduce myself, I said, hi, I'm, I'm Beth uh, Ford, he goes, oh, I know who you are. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Um, I'm thinking, what does that mean? And he goes, I just want to say, and he he stood there and he he's he's he started to cry. And his you know, his lip was moving, and I went over to him and I said, It's okay. It's it's gonna be okay. And he said, No, it's, it's my son, my son is gay. And I said, I said, he goes, and I'm I'm just so proud of you, and I'm so grateful for your courage. And I just, I just held him. I said, he's so fortunate to have a father like you. Because um, all of us just want to be, I guess, valued, seen. Um, you know, that, that to me was, was such a profound moment. I can literally see it. I, I can feel it. I, you know, I just hold him and I say, I just, I, you know, I'm grateful that you took the time to say that to me. And he goes, I just, I, I you know, it's, it's so hard, but I'm so grateful that you, you've been so authentic about this. It's, it's really that pain. And that's why I say most of the time when I'm contacted like that, I feel that pain, the pain of the journey. It, I, it's not really about me at all. It's about the pain or the emotion that hope for their, themselves or their children. That of course, all of us understand. I understand. I've got three children. I hope everybody values them and they think they're good people, you know. And so most of the time, I don't think it's me at all. So when you say that I'm grateful, it's not me it's a reflection of this moment of and what level of concern pain joy happiness pride is present um and so it's i'm grateful to be there with those people at that moment to to um to tell them they'll be okay that it's going to be okay that's incredibly touching and powerful thank you so much beth i, I have one last question before we turn to audience q a it's something we'll ask all of our speakers this year it's obviously been an incredibly challenging year. What principles do you rely on as a leader when facing these tough moments? Um, calm is contagious. Calm is contagious. I, I kind of gave everybody a Minnesota, and you'll know this um, view, uh, you know, in the snowstorm, in the car, you don't jerk the wheel. You pump the brake. Don't jerk the wheel, for God's sake. We'll go into the ditch. And then the, the priority is always your people. Your people, your people, your people. Now, I've said I felt like I was pretty engaged with my team before, but not nearly. Now I'm really reflecting back and saying, maybe I really wasn't as present because there's an intimacy here. You're sitting here. I'm, I'm doing this for my home office. I've had multiple situations. I've done, you know, I'm doing live interviews with Washington Post or something in my, where my son's is low crawling in here in his underwear to get his technology out of my office. You know, you see people, the whole person, you don't see Beth, who's the CEO. You see Beth, she has these kids. Oh, we're going to have to go. We're going camping. I'm not really a camper, but now we're doing that. Um, you know, there's the dog. There's the cat. I mean, it's there's almost this um, this joy of this moment, this intimacy. And there's been a flattening, right? There's not this hierarchy, really. It's this flattening. I do lunch with Beth, breakfast with Beth. I do all sorts of things. 
And, um, and so the principle of the people first, and I tell them, and we have a hotline, we have thousands of calls. Um, I say, you know, you're not going to hear me say, aren't we just lucky that you, you have a job? Because I don't know, I'm not living their journey. You know, I don't know what's going on in their home. I don't know what the pressures are. I don't know what's going on with their their parents, their children, whatever. Um, you, 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 you can't sit there and say, well, you should just be grateful. No, it's hard. It's emotional. This is a marathon. And, um, and so the principle of people first and second and third is, is what I live with. And then like I say, keep calm, calm is contagious, make, don't jerk the wheel. Let's stay, let's stay in the lane here. Wonderful message to leave us all with Beth. Thank you so much. Um, that'll conclude the main part of the interview. I'll invite Ed and MBA two to ask our first question right now. He should be on in a second. Hey, Ed. Hey, Beth. Hi, Beth. I'm Ed, a uh, second-year MBA student at the GSB. Um, thanks so much for being with us here today. Uh, my question is related to the Black Lives Matter movement and the call for racial equity. Uh, your headquarters is only 15 miles north of where George Floyd was killed last May. And I guess my question is, how did you manage your staff in the days and weeks that followed that? Listen, that was a painful, awful time still. This is a fraught environment, let's all agree. And it's not just here in the Twin Cities, it's elsewhere around the country. Um, you know, it was painful to see somebody basically murdered in front of us, right? And um, there, there are a couple things that I would know. There, there are 17 Fortune 500s here in the Twin Cities that are headquartered here. And um, it is an expectation, kind of the Midwest, you are involved in multiple organizations as a CEO or as a senior leader. If you're in the C-suite, you, you know, 85% of our, um, of our team volunteers. So this is an active involved community, but the fact of the matter is there are disparate outcomes from an educational perspective for minorities in this community. And let's agree, education is a foundational issue for wealth creation, for job opportunities, for all sorts of things. But we're like 49th out of 50. It's just it's stunning. Not because there's not investment or well-meaning people, but clearly we're not listening. So would you say, what did you do? How did you handle this as a leader? Well, the first thing we need to do is step back, listen to our team. We had listening sessions as did many of the, the companies in town. It was led by our ERG, our Black African American ERG. They shared their fear for their own children, things that had happened to them. Um, it was really eye-opening and painful, frankly. They asked then, um, you know, for more transparency about um, our, you know, about uh, progress that we're making on diversity. And what I was quite honest with is, listen, we attract good talent, uh, minority talent. We don't retain well. We're clearly not connecting. We need to do better. Um, this is going to be a journey. So the first thing we did is listen. We did put in place some other try to be more transparent and then outside the community because what I recognize is when we when people leave it's one thing to say you're safe here and you're engaged inside the four walls of the company it's another thing to say you're safe in your community or you should feel engaged in your community and welcome and so we uh, have been trying to work in the in our community and uh, in the communities in which we do business to uh, you know to again say we will make investment we want to make sure that there's opportunity we want to make sure the policies are are appropriate, we'll work with government officials, all sorts of things. So it's a both an internal and external thing. And then it's really saying, it's not, oh, we did that session, now we're done. No, no, this is gonna be an ongoing thing here. Minnesota Business Partners has the CEOs of all of the major corporations in town. And then I sit on the Business Roundtable Board of Directors and the CEOs there of over 200 of the largest corporations. Um, you know, that one's led by W. Mellon of Walmart, um, is, is we're all working to say, what are the investments we need to make to make a change? Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Ed. One more question, Beth, that's from Morgan, who's an MBA one. Hey, Morgan. Hi, Beth, I'm Morgan Kitson, MBA one at GSB. Uh, my question is around the future of the industry. Um, so how will the agriculture industry evolve to meet greater demands for food with um, higher sustainability requirements? 
And how do you prepare existing companies to meet this challenge? Well, it's like you're in my head, Morgan. You probably said it more articulate than that. Um, you know, the, the, the fundamental issue is that we're going to go to nine and a half to 10 billion people by 2050. You almost have to double food production in that time with less land, less arable land, less water, right? Freshwater is always already a problem. Where's most population growth going to occur? Africa, India. And some of those areas are, are water scarce anyway. And their technology, let's say if our yield for corn production, for instance, on average is 176 bushels an acre, they might get like you know, 40 or less. So, you know, when you say, what are we going to do now? And then let's think about the transformation. I get this a lot. I met uh, an event and somebody say, well, what do you think about plant-based, Beth? Beth, what do you think about uh, cell-based? What do you think about? And I'm like, yes, I am an advocate for innovation. I'm going to go have a regular burger. You have your plant-based. Okay. I'm going to have a burger. Um, but I don't need to be uh, to quip about that because your comment is really one that I spend a lot of time with my team on. I mentioned this, um, these other pressures, the electrification of the transportation sector. Let me just say 40% of corn produced goes into ethanol biofuels. Now, California you know, Governor Newsom, I've met with him personally. I mean, he's a thought leader. What did he say? By 2035, all have to be, you know, electric vehicles, right? So biofuels, which have been central to the profitability of farmers, in addition to exports, we're a net exporter. Um, same thing for dairy producers. What happens when biofuels are no longer necessary? How quickly is that going to happen? Of course, we could get into a lot of those discussions. What's going to happen with the geopolitical environment then when that transitions out of the Middle East? I mean, there are so many factors here. So um, when you say, how do I think about it or what are we doing? What I have to do is what I did initially with the, um, with the COVID crisis is I said, I've got to protect the enterprise. I immediately checked liquidity. I had my CFO running all sorts of models. I talked with our bankers. I, I mean, I was looking at every scenario. Okay, can we withstand? How long can we withstand? What does this imply? So I'm when I'm thinking of this, I have to protect the enterprise and I have to protect the members. These are families. They have their entire life's investment in this. If the sector is going to transition in, in different ways that we just discussed, whether it's biofuels, whether it's different types of food production, and let's all agree, I'm, I'm a big believer in biodiversity, for instance. We basically have three main crops that feed us, and there are, what, 30,000 plant varieties or something? I mean, we need to do something, and, and there's been a significant uh, destruction of biodiversity on the planet. So we know we have to do something. And what I have to do is think about it from a, what is the member, what, are the, what is the enterprise, and then how do we set up different incentive structures to allow different revenue sources for farmers as this transition occurs or as we work towards this, this. Because the technology is there to feed this world's population. I can tell you that already. How do we know that? There's excess supply, yet we also have a billion people that go to bed hungry every night. There's a distribution in economics and an equity issue. And with that then, there are multiple ways I can answer your question, Morgan. What I think it takes is fundamentally in the capitalist society here is to come up with different incentive structures, whether it's in carbon capture, whether it's in, you know, the, as I said, carbon credits, there are other ways that incentives can be put together for farmers um, and in this sector that will stabilize them and will allow us to move to this transition, but is also better for society and for other bigger problems like climate change. Thank you. Thank you so much to Ed and Morgan for those awesome questions. I've got great classmates tonight, Beth. I'm very lucky to be yes, here. Yes, you are. They're smart. <laughs> want to end with our lightning round, Beth. It's a tradition here on View from the Top. I know you're, you have experience, so the expectations are high from the <laughs> okay. audience. I'm going to do my best here. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have you finish some sentences from the perspective of a few different people. Okay. okay. The first one's simple. You are yourself. I think you can okay. do that. All right. So I'm Beth Ford. Over the past few months, I've been binge watching. Uh, Yellowstone. 
Okay. I thought maybe there'd be a problem. Like, I don't know what I've been watching. I like it. No, no, yeah. no. I was thinking Yellowstone. But then most recently, I was going back to something I watched a few years ago, Newsroom with mm. Jeff Daniels. Yeah, said, I yeah. like that one. So yeah. most recently, I've been watching that. And then I really want to get into this. What is it? The Queen's Gambit? Oh, we just finished that. Amazing. Is it good? Love it. Okay. Got to do that one. Okay. I'm a Columbia MBA, and I love that. Heart NYC, go Lions. But if I could have gone to any other business school, it would be? Well, of course, Stanford. <laughs> but I'm not cool. sure they would have taken me. So, you know, if you say, what is the presumption? The presumption is that they would have wanted me, right? I, you know, I think Columbia, I'll tell you, I'll be very honest and transparent why I went to Columbia. Um, I had met Jill. And she was going to Columbia Law School. And I was actually going to go further south for my MBA. And she mm -hmm. told me she thought it was a good idea if I went to Columbia. And I was kind of smitten. So I said, of course, I'm going to go to Columbia. And there it is, 28 years later. Great. Okay, I'm a Stanford MBA. And I hope one day to be as incredible a power couple as Beth and Jill. To do that, the number one thing I must do is... Marry the right person. That, that was what I was thinking, too. You got to find somebody first. There's a lot of singles in our class, so... Well, I mean, you, it, there is, that is the most important career decision you make. I'm not, that's no lie. Mm. And we, it, in my career and her, I mean, she was a lawyer, she was, she was a, she went to West Point and then she was coming out, she went to law school, she went to Scadden, then she became, went into banking and then she became the CEO of a hedge fund. And, um, but we make life decisions about careers, right? Life decisions, because it's never individual. You're hiring the whole person. We have three children. Um, we've got a very busy life. So, uh, it's who you marry that is critical for your career. I love that. Makes sense. Last one, Beth. So I'm the CEO of Land Lakes, and I try to eat dinner as often as possible with Jill and my three kids. My favorite kid is, <laughs> you don't have to answer. <laughs> Only if you want to, but <laughs> no, you know, we asked my mother that one time we said, you know, you have a favorite, you know who it is because there's eight of us. And she goes, no, I don't. But then we gave her like half a glass of wine, which is her max. And she told us, and we knew it was our, my older brother, Michael. Now, Michael, we're like, of course, he's the best of us. He's the smartest. He was a Navy captain. You know, he's got like, he's got his PhD in like something smart, nuclear engineering or something. He's teaching at Harvard. And we're like, of course you love Mike best. We all love Mike best. He's so much smarter than us. He's a good guy. So, uh, you know. But I will not say I have a favorite. I love them all. That's that's the perfect answer. Thank you so much, Beth, for the time today. Thank you for all you do for farmers, for rural America, and the great state of Minnesota. Well, thank you. And thanks for the invitation to be with you. I'm wishing all of you the very best. Um, good luck on your journey. Please stay in touch. I'd be happy to help any way I can. You've been listening to View From The Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by me, Adrian Agueros, of the MBA class of 2021. Lily Sloan composed our theme music, and Kelsey Doyle produced this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, www.gsb.stanford.edu. Follow us on social media at Stanford GSB.